Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, In March, we were all really on edge uh, and watching quite closely Russia's military buildup in and around Ukraine. Uh, At that time, Russia's military buildup had sparked fears that there could be a dramatic escalation of the longstanding conflict. But today, fast forward, uh, Russia has begun to draw down forces and order units in the area back to their bases. Russia maintains that the military buildup was a routine training exercise. Um, but I think the Kremlin, Kremlin's true intentions behind the buildup and as well as the current drawdown are still somewhat unclear. Um, some have suggested that the buildup was a way for Russia to kind of quote unquote reset its posture in the region to a more aggressive stance. Um, others have suggested it had something to do with the timing of the incoming Biden administration. Uh, there's numerous theories out there. Some of those we addressed in an earlier edition of Brussels Sprouts. But we're ready to pick that up again, kind of take stock of where we are and where we think we're headed. And to do that, we're excited to have two really uh, exceptional guests. We are excited to welcome General Curtis Scaparotti and also to welcome back Lieutenant General uh, Ben Hodges. So welcome to you both. We're really excited to have you with us. Great to be here, Andrea. Thank you. And Jim, appreciate it. Thanks for the privilege. All right, as often as always, I'm going to do a quick um, bit of bio for our listeners. So General Scaparotti is currently a senior counselor at the Cohen Group. In 2019, he completed a distinguished 41-year career in the U.S. Army as the commander, U.S. European Command, and Supreme Allied Commander Europe, NATO. Um, And Ben is joining us. Uh, We've had him on the show previously, so we're excited to have him back. But Ben now holds the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis, or CEPA. And he previously served in the U.S. Army for 38 years, completing his last assignment as Commander of U.S. Army Europe from 2014 to 2017. So with that, um, maybe we can kind of rewind just a little bit. Um, So this is, we did on a previous podcast, try to tackle what we thought were Putin and Russia's motivations behind the military buildup. And I want to put that question to both of you again, just to see how and whether our thinking about this has evolved. Um, So General Scaparotti, maybe we can start with you kind of as we now have, you know, the advantage of looking at some of this in hindsight. What do you think was behind uh, the military buildup in and around Ukraine? Well, you know, I think you mentioned kind of a potentially a reset. I think for Putin, it was an opportunity to reestablish what he saw as their authority in a sphere of influence uh, in light of sanctions, in light of uh, the Ukraine's president uh, statement that um, he would be more aggressive and that he was seeking NATO uh, admission or at least a map, uh, a request to do so. And in light of a new administration here in the United States, I think all of those things served him well in terms of showing strength. So it was not only a statement of resolve on his part, but it was also a test for the new administration here in the United States. And Lieutenant General Hodges, what do you? What about you? Are you on a kind of similar line of thinking? Well, first of all, you know, in the very beginning, you started off by saying that we were all on edge. And unfortunately, I think we should all still be on edge. Um, I don't think the Russians pulled anything back. They might have 
sent uh, a handful of people back to the barracks. Uh, and, you know, I live here in Frankfurt, Germany, and I could hear the sigh of relief coming from Brussels and Berlin and Paris, like, whew, okay, thank God it's, you know, it, it's all over, which of course is exactly what uh, the Kremlin wants, is for all of us to say, thank God it's all over, COVID's almost over, it, uh, everybody's going on summer holiday, and Germany's getting ready for uh, elections in September. And so in my view, this is a, what we would call an operational pause, exactly what Scap said, you know, they're kind of getting their, getting their stuff together. The Russians are still 50% conscript army. And so I don't know where the conscription waves are. So they had to kind of reload and they've got Zapad coming up this, this summer or fall. So, and it's, by the way, it's going to be a lot harder in Crimea in three months. And that water crisis is going to be a lot more significant. Um, the, both those uh, interventions were, were very good and really have helped set the table. And also, uh, before I get into my question, just on a personal basis, it's great to see both of you. It's a great honor to have you all and a great pleasure to see you. And thank you for taking some time out of your very busy schedules. And uh, Ben, I have to say, I thought about you when this thing began to kick off in 2014. You and I were right there in the crosshairs trying to figure out what were we going to do about this uh, when the Russians went into Crimea to begin with. Uh, and we were trying to, as you were saying, trying to make 30,000 look like 300,000. <laughs> and I remember that very well. I have dreams about that still. Um, but, but let me ask you, you know, as this thing kicked off, uh, this latest version kicked off, I, I, I had to, I had to have to say, I thought about our brethren there at UCOM in the joint staff, OSD policy as they were trying to figure out. So what are the options then that you deliver to the, to the president on, on how we should deal with this? You know, a lot of in the press and this type of thing, a lot of focus was on sanctions and on statements and uh, the EU and the U.S. saying things together, NATO. I mean, there was a lot of rhetoric, but but we all know that uh, the lights were burning late there in, in UCOM and at the in the Pentagon trying to figure out. So, so what are some of the things that could be recommended to the president that are military moves you can make? That, that aren't going to make things worse necessarily, that aren't going to accelerate things, but but, but are prudent to do anyway, uh, and also send important signals. So, so my question for you is this, based on what I just said, what would you have recommended then, or what did actually UCOM do, or NATO, but particularly UCOM? You know, what 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 are the some of the moves that you might have hoped were in some of those uh, COAs going up the chain of command to the White House in terms of what military moves could be done? And then secondly, Ben, based on what you and and uh, Scap just said, what should UCOM and the planners be doing now? Given the fact that, and I agree, we should be on edge. This 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 movie isn't over yet. So, what are some of the things that we should be doing now? Maybe to reposture a little bit. Maybe as indications and warning. Uh, maybe what, what should you? What would you think planners need to be thinking about right now? So, two questions that are related. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think Ben brought up a really good point, and that is that, you know, this was not initially, but later tied to a SNAP exercise in the Southern Military District. Um, you know, initially they said, well, it's only 10,000. And then, well, later it's 300,000 with the military district in the South. So, you know, I think that one of the things is, is that we should expect that as you look at Zapad in the West, again, we're going to have another period of tension as they go through that large exercise. 
That's right. Because they always start with a defense, but they always move into an offensive part of the exercise that looks a whole lot like an attack in the area that they're in. Yeah. It's very provocative in the way they do their exercises. And as we've seen, they don't fully announce what they're going to do. So I think one of the things is, is look longer term and, and say, look, this is naturally not just about Ukraine. It's about the East and it's about how Russia projects itself and what they want as a fear, sphere of influence. So I think some of the recommendations are not just about Ukraine. They're about our deterrent posture in the East, that we have to continue to strengthen uh, air defense, missile defense ourselves, the U.S., but also with our allies and make that known. Uh, precision fires and the capabilities to do that. So you not only are posture of our forces, air, ground, but also uh, our naval, but also the exercises that show Russia uh, capability. Um, and we still, in my opinion, have work to do to have that kind of a deterrent posture. And those are the recommendations I would make is continue that way. I would say too that I was happy to see in UCOM's testimony that uh, some of those steps are still being taken, that we still plan on, you know, two more um, Aegis cruisers or Aegis destroyers coming into the UCOM's AOR. Those are all part of this and important steps. Right. So, first of all, I think we continue to be surprised when the Kremlin does stuff that they do. Because now I'm, I'm, this is a gross generalization, obviously, but the the we the, the the West we we tend to think about what they might do through Western eyes, and I mean I haven't met anybody yet that predicted that the week after the Sochi Olympics they would invade Crimea. I mean because like why they just spent zillions of rubles showing the world how wonderful Russia is, and then a week later they invade. A European country, right? Absolutely. And we're all like, what? They would never do that. And so we've got to quit um, thinking like Westerners and, and try and understand um, how the Kremlin thinks about things, not in a sympathetic way or try to understand them, but think like they—they they actually will use force again. And in fact, they won't stop until they are stopped. They, this whole thing started in 2007 with their the. Uh, they began a significant modernization effort, invaded Georgia in 2008. They saw we didn't do anything. I'm, again, I'm generalizing, but really we didn't do anything to punish them. Uh, they saw that the collective we did not do anything after the Assad regime blew past President Obama's red lines about use of chemical weapons. And then they saw that we didn't really do anything to punish them after 2014. So uh, now NATO got busy. We, we did a lot of stuff inside NATO but we didn't inflict any punishment on the Kremlin, except for some EU sanctions, which I don't think have had much of an effect other than to slow down their modernization efforts. So they, they still don't believe that we're actually going to, they feel, let me say it differently, they are confident that we're not going to actually do anything to punish them. And so he, he's obviously not after the Nobel Peace Prize. And so I think we're going to deal with this until we actually do stop them, which is the point of your question. And every, all five of us here participated in things over the past month um, where we were all in different kind of discussions about what are options? What could we do? What, what could the administration do? And while, uh, I mean, these are good, talented, smart people, 
But the fact that we were doing that highlights the fact that the United States government does not have a strategy for the Black Sea region. Now, Scap's exactly right. This is not about Ukraine. Ukraine's not an island. It's We care about Ukraine not only because they're wonderful people, but because it's attached to the Black Sea and, and the Russia and, and uh, Georgia and uh, our Romanian allies and, and because of Turkey. So uh, when the president issued what I thought was a great policy statement um, that Ukrainian sovereignty is a priority for the United States. I, I loved it, but there's no, there's no strategy that underpins that. Now, if there were, then there would probably be things like, um, you know, we wouldn't be hoping that the Navy can show up with another vessel um, and, and then seeing it get turned away. There would be, almost, you know, what the Army calls heel-to-toe Navy presence. Instead, our our great Navy, we don't have enough, and um, we don't even use half of the days per year that we're allowed within the constraints of mantra. We don't don't even use up half of our our quota. And I think that's because we don't have the strategy and therefore uh, have difficulty competing for priorities for the overstretched uh, Navy. one specific thing I would recommend um, is uh, how do we get the initiative? You know, General Scapp, since he was a lieutenant, grew up being taught you have to take the initiative and you're never going to have enough stuff. So how do you how do you get the initiative? And uh, I think doing something to make the commander of the Black Sea Fleet feel very, very uncomfortable in his illegal port uh, would be uh, would be something or do something in Georgia somewhere else uh, to, to change the initiative. So we're not always just reacting to what they do. All really excellent points. And so, um, Ben, I want to pick up on something you said, because, I mean, it's so true. We're constantly surprised. We were surprised in Ukraine. We were surprised in Syria. You know, we said never would they go out of area. And so part of the the goal, and and I grew up in the intelligence community, and so it is important to understand how Russia views the world, not because we want to understand them, but because we want to be able to provide strategic warning um, and possibly, you know, alert policymakers about moves they might take. But when you when you look at the Black Sea region, I mean, I guess we could say Eastern Europe and Black Sea region. What is it that you think Russia is trying to accomplish in that area? What what do you when you if you were to put you know from the Kremlin's perspective what when they look at Eastern Europe what do they want to accomplish um, and 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 how might that help us kind of think through and and be a little bit better at deterrence and some of the other things that you're talking about. Well, the, um, are you asking me or Scott? Uh, both of you. I'd love to hear from both. Okay, so for sure, you know, the, I think everybody agrees that uh, the Kremlin is going to do everything they can to make sure that Ukraine never is able to fully integrate to the West, but in terms of EU as, as well as NATO, and that's their same uh, expectation for Georgia uh, as well, that they're going to continuously undermine that. And they don't have to work too hard because nobody in uh, uh, Germany, in Berlin or Paris, and probably even in London, has any skin in the game in the Black Sea. I mean, there's no serious German investment or French investment or Dutch investment in the Black Sea region, so they don't care. And and, uh, you'd have a hard time finding 10 people within a a mile of me here in Frankfurt that would want to see Ukraine be a part of NATO within the Bundeswehr, but have some 
would have an obligation. They, 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 they just don't have any interest there. So uh, the, the chief of intelligence from Romania uh, told me one time, he said, Colonel Hodges, imagine the Black Sea as a balcony for the, for the Russians, where they can look out over the Middle East, the Caucasus, and the Balkans. It's, it's how they see the rest of the world. And I think about 90% of their grain export, as well as their weapons export, all comes out through the Black Sea. So they don't want anybody doing anything that interferes or could threaten any of that. Yeah, you know, Andrea, I, I, would, I agree with Ben. And I think that, you know, his other point about uh, how the Russians view this, we tend to think about this through an American lens. If you're in Moscow and you're looking out, their first, their principal uh, objective is defend the homeland. And they've always seen that defense with a sphere of influence that gives them strategic depth. They've always counted on that. And that's what they desire to have back in the Black Sea and the countries in the East are a part of that desire. It's just a part of their defense. Secondly, their military culture and their doctrine is that a good defense has to have an offense. And so a lot of the things that we see as aggressive and, act and, and offensive are, in their mind, a part of that defense, a part of establishing that strategic depth. I'm not saying that I agree that they should, be, <laughs> that they should do that, but I'm just saying to them, it's not that outside of an expectation. Now, having said that, we should be less worried about what we see as provocative, i.e., I agree with Ben, we should have put our ships into the Black Sea rather than hesitate because it's, quote, provocative. The Russians don't read it that way. In fact, they, they almost expect it. And when we don't do it, they see that as them establishing their authority in the Black Sea. Uh, lastly, I would say that the importance to Russia, given you know, their strategic location for the Black Sea, is, is that they now have a port. And the only port that's open year-round and allows them to move in and out of the Med and supply now forces that they have and a base they have in Syria. So all of those things are of, of import to them, and it just increases uh, their defense of the homeland as well. Those are those are great, great responses. Uh, you know, I'm starting to wish I was back in government again. <laughs> Just to just to deal with these issues, but, but but all along that line, actually, let me let me ask you, you know, I um I think I think to myself, if I were, if I were the DASD right now, what would one of the things that I would be doing, uh, and and one of those things would be looking at what NATO, the battle groups that NATO has put into the Baltics and into Poland, you know, that they've been there now for a while. Both of you guys were instrumental uh, in in betting them down and getting them. To, to a place where they were working on strengthening deterrence and that kind of thing. But time's moved on. We've got a new administration. We have uh, a couple of things happening. Uh, in June, we're going to have a NATO summit um, where traditionally the U.S. announces what we used to call, still do, I guess, deliverables. You know, uh, the U.S. is going to come in and make some suggestions. And also we're going to have Biden and Putin meeting, too. Um, what would you, if you guys were writing the briefing books um, out of UConn, you know, you were sending stuff from UConn into the joint staff, uh, 
you know, things for the uh, for the summit. What what you would recommend that the U.S. announce at the NATO summit in terms of what the U.S. will do in terms of uh, strengthening deterrence, in terms of dealing with this so this Russian behavior that we've seen. Um, you know, you've 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 worked the the battle group issue, but and also military mobility. Looking at you, Ben, on that. But but what else is there? Something else that you all would do in a in a in a paper to go up to the SecDef's book or maybe the president's book on on deliverables in terms of military posture in Europe, in terms of what UCOM or Navier or uh, USAFE, what what might we announce at the summit um, that would then strengthen the president's hand when he goes in and talks to Putin? Uh, later on, and 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 Putin will see the U.S. making some posture changes there, uh, whether it's under a NATO flag, you know, as part of the battle group, or whether it's a U.S. posture change, uh, you know, coming out of the United States. Well, what would you guys put in your paper? Well, who wants to go first? <laughs> well, that's that's a tough question. I think you know, Jim, when you come back to this. I, I think at the summit, the, the primary thing is unity. I mean, there has to be unity in voice. And as you know, in, in, in NATO, that's been increasingly difficult, I think, over the, the last couple of years. It's, it's, uh, it's become a problem. So I think that would be the first thing is just simply unity. It sounds like it's, uh, you know, it's kind of the common thing, but I think it's ever more important than as the, you know, as a secure, that was the point I always made. Secondly, I think that um, it would be a consolidation of the efforts that we've been moving along in a way that you could present it uh, with the United States being at the center of most of that. So uh, I'm talking about the modernization of the NATO chain of command that has taken place. What is the status of that? How is it connected to the battle groups on the Eastern Front? And then as a core of that, the new headquarters that have been established, what's the, what is the U.S. posture reinforcing that? Right. Now, we've done a number of things in terms of movement of forces um, on the Eastern Front, including Poland. Uh, we've done a number of things about um, uh, you know, new uh, aircraft uh, Fifth-gen aircraft, for instance, the F-35, um, those kinds of modernization that we've worked on over the last couple of years have just kind of been evolving, but we really haven't consolidated them in the way that they impact NATO itself. Right. And then I would look at both cyber and space as well, I think, uh, with, with announcements with respect to what we've done to modernize and reinforce our, our posture there because this is a multi-domain problem. And I think if we can connect our posture to what NATO's is, uh, that's helpful. Yeah, great points. So as much as I would love to hear a big announcement about Ukraine and Georgia on membership action plan, uh, the realist in me knows it's just not gonna happen. And, and so I agree with Scap that, you know, cohesion in the Alliance that that is the center of gravity, and so the president has got to do everything possible, working with Secretary General Stoltenberg to make sure that we come out of the summit with uh, all thirty nations uh, arm in arm and no daylight between us. But that that means that Secretary Blinken, Secretary Austin, and the president have got to be kicking the hell out of some of our allies uh, ahead of then. 
to, to get them in line. Just saying we are, we are in cohesion, that we are cohesive without any red meat there. It will, will not only is it empty, it'll appear empty, which is, which is not, not helpful. So I think finding those things where we can come out strong uh, together and frankly, Berlin and Paris have got to be doing a lot more. And I hope, I'm sure that the administration is working hard with our allies there. Certainly it's a challenge with Berlin right now with their own domestic situation and, you know, going through change, a new government and all that coming up this fall. Um, but that, that has to be number one. Now, I think number two, um, a very clear statement uh, of this policy about Ukrainian sovereignty, that, that this, is, uh, this is a priority for all of us. And, and I think that helps President Zelensky withstand the temptation to take the bait from the Russians when he hears from all the allies that their sovereignty is there, we're with you, we're going to look for every possible way we can to support, we're going to do things exercises like sea breeze, which is coming up here at the end of June. It'll be the biggest sea breeze ever. Uh, I think this is a great opportunity and maybe we roll out a, a, a plan for exercises in uh, 22 and beyond that is more encompassing like the Defender 21, but which Ukraine plays a, plays a part. I think a, a declaration of uh, continuing support for training uh, the way we've done with Georgia in the past, uh, even more formalizing that. I think um, what would really knock their socks off in the Kremlin um, is for us to have fixed or repaired the relationship with Turkey. Um, I mean, that's, that is the, in my view, the, the gaping hole in the Black Sea region is that Turkey's interest is status quo. They don't want anything that literally rocks any boats there. And so, uh, but they don't trust us us, U.S. and Europe, and, and we're all so frustrated with them. So fixing the relationship with Turkey, I think, um, should be at, uh, very high on the list. Um, designating Romania as a center of gravity. I mean, you know, thanks to uh, people long before me, like you, Jim, that, you know, turned MK into this hub that uh, on any given day, there's over 800 American soldiers plus NATO Black Sea Air Policing that flies out of there. Uh, our great Air Force deploying a squadron of uh, MQ-9s to Capiotorzi there, in Romania. I mean, it's the obvious place for power projection since Turkey is not willing to do enough, do any more. And then my last thing would be um, getting the effect of an unblinking eye over the Black Sea. Um, we've got satellite capability, you've got air breathing platforms, you've got ships, you've got ground base, but there's there's nowhere that fuses it all together. And Ukrainians and Georgians will know more about Russia than we'll know in a thousand years. But they're they're not they're not NATO, they're not even they're not five eye. How can we take advantage of what's out there to improve our awareness of what the heck is going on in the region? You know, I, I I love those ideas from both of you. I'm going to follow up on just a couple of them real quick. But on uh, first, a shout out about Novoselo in Bulgaria. I fought long and hard to keep the army budgeteers from cutting that place. God, I spent a lot of time trying to be an entrepreneur, you know, rent it out. You know, this is during the sequestration days. And I just saw in the paper a couple of days ago, they had, a, I think the 173rd did something there just a couple of days ago. And I was going, 
Yeah, Novo lives. It's very good. But but just real quick, I think I, I've always thought there should be a hub in Romania, an Intel Fusion Center there, uh, taking advantage of their expertise. You know, I mean, you can have a fusion center anywhere, but I think having it in Romania to begin with, with uh, would, would would be great. And I was hoping we'd have something like that by now. Um, secondly, I think in terms of Ukraine, I do think a, maybe a deliverable would be trying to um, improve the security assistance program that we have with Ukraine. You know, I don't know about you all, but I was pummeled by the press for, not pummeled, but I got a lot of questions about Javelin. Now's the time for Javelin. Where's Javelin? Javelin's going to, and it's like, good Lord, you know, this focus on Javelin, you know, <laughs> you know, great, but, 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 but that's a real limited kind of, kind of approach here. It's, it's a slender read. So I think we got to do more on the lethal side for Ukraine. That's a signal too, in terms of also building up the confidence of the, of the Ukraine people. Uh, but, um, but Scap, also your point on space with NATO, I think is, is critical too. You know, uh, NATO has, uh, you know, space is a domain now and uh, UK is now set up a space uh, uh, expertise are going to build on that. I think the French are too. That's something I think the U.S. could roll in on at that summit and say, look, we're going to really, you know, try to combine as much as we can the space force, but, but, you know, get in there and work with these allies and try to pull NATO into, into better into this domain. There's a lot of rhetoric there. And I think, I think the U.S. has got to really jump in there with both feet and work with the allies who are going to be doing space-related things to make sure NATO is protected in that that domain. So uh, anyway, just some points. Uh, um, Scab, it looks like you're going to say something. I was going to say, I agree, Jim. The reason I mentioned space was, as you know, that that we can really lead that effort and we're going to need to. And then the countries that have capability, as you just mo- noted, few will roll in. And that's the way it expands. That's how you make it effective for NATO. Cyber has rolled out the same way, for instance, and I think we've done a good job really in NATO of exploiting cyber capabilities in, in with the, among the nations and pulling it together. So, you know, we need to do the same there uh, in space. And I think it can be, it can, you know, it can really pay off for us. So, when I, oh, go ahead, Ben, go ahead. I, just two, two things. Uh, first, specifically to Javelin, um, I was frustrated myself uh, that, I mean, this question kept coming up. And I, I checked with several people in DOD and at the embassy. And then I also reached out to Ukrainian officers to say, right, what's the deal? And the only thing holding back use of Javelin is Ukrainian general staff. I mean, the United States has not tethered or handcuffed them other than normal um, accountability, which we would do with anybody of these kinds of things. And I remember uh, when we first started handing, uh, issuing the, uh, the IFAC, the individual first aid kit, the really good one that U.S. medics and soldiers carry, Ukrainians, they would lock them away because they were so worried about pilferage or losing accountability of them. So with that, when I realized that, then it was easy for me to see that there would be reluctance about pilferage or loss of these clues, the, the launch unit for the Javelin Right. Um, and then, but I also heard from a Ukrainian uh, officer, he said that there is some concern, be, just like the Russians came after the Q-36 radar, the, ca- the excellent counterfire radar, as soon as that started becoming effective, for sure they would be launching teams coming after anybody that, if they could ever get the, the clues, you know, the, uh, the Javelin launchers. And so I think there's a, a risk assessment process um about that but that, 
bottom line is this is not a U.S. policy. This is Ukrainian employment policy. So the idea of well, they need more javelins is I, I would disagree with it. And I would also say I, I visited the uh, the famous tank plant in Kharkiv a few years ago. I'm being a history nerd. I wanted to go to Kharkiv to see the place where the T-34, the most famous tank in history, was actually born and developed. And uh, I think most of the people working there were the same guys that built the T-34. I mean, they had been there for decades. And uh, you can be sure that OSHA had never been inside that factory. I mean, sparks were flying and people smoking cigarettes. And But it was awesome. I mean, you, it, I saw uh, battle damage repair on, on tanks uh, happening. And then over there, I saw a whole row of brand new tanks. I mean, they smelled new. And I got very excited and said, are those going to the front? And they go, no, no, these are going to Thailand. I said, what? Yeah, we, we export these tanks to Thailand. So I'm not so <laughs> sure that, that Ukraine, which was the heart of the Soviet defense industry, needs a lot from us in terms of bullets and, and, and weapons. Intelligence, counterfire radar, night vision, secure comms, yes. But, I mean, weaponry, they make it. My, my last point, the Arctic. This is, this is a place where we can stretch the Russians instead of just re responding to what they do in the Black Sea. I mean, we should make it very clear, which is, by the way, the way the department's already headed. We're going to do a lot more in the Arctic region with all of our allies up there. And let's see if we can uh, stretch the stretch the road. Okay, I have two kind of tangential questions, and I'm just curious. I want to hear how both of you would respond to these things. So, I, one is picking up General Scaparotti on something that you said that we kind of have to stop worrying about our actions being provocative, as seen by the Russians. And I think you know Russia, for its part kind of regularly tries to use what it will frame or call a more active or more assertive NATO presence on its borders to justify its more aggressive actions. They're always trying to frame what they do as defensive. And this gets at just such a, a key fault line, I think, in the Russia watching community, which is those that lean towards, you know, we don't, can't worry about being provocative, we need more deterrence, and those that will argue, you know, well, if we just took Russian interests into consideration, that, you know, that that's a better way to deal with them. I, 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 can, I know clearly where you both stand, but what do, you t what do you tell people, or how would you explain your position? When you run up to that line of thinking, how do you respond to that? You know, Andrea, first of all, I would just try to put it in context. The Russians um, are very deliberate about their calculations of military strength when they look at an adversary. That's part of their culture. We know that. And so we know, too, they're looking closely at what NATO does, what U.S. does, and they're going through their calculations. And when you look at most of what we do, you can lay that out from our perspective and presented as not a real threat to Russia as they would see a threat to their homeland. You know, when, you, when they first came out and argued about the battle groups, okay, R Russia made a statement along the lines that this was a spearhead, you know, their words for an attack into NATO or an attack by NATO into Russia. Well, we all know, any, any military person to include their generals know that that's not the case, that that isn't the kind of strength or structure you would have for that. And it wouldn't be effective at it. So, you know, I try to put it back into that same 
calculation and present it from their side because uh, it just doesn't doesn't hold water. And I think the Russians are good at looking at this. As I said, they have they have expectations of what they think they should see from us for deterrent posture, and we ought to make sure that we uh, we fit the bill that we actually answer those questions in their minds so that we do have a credible deterrent. I, I would only add that um, uh, to what General Scappa said, that um, they respect strength and despise weakness. And uh, I, I think they probably can't believe their luck. How quickly we, the collective we in the West, will say, oh, you know, it's so important that we continue the dialogue. Holy hell, we've, the dialogue never stopped. I mean, there are so many different venues where there are, where there is dialogue. OSCE, uh, the NATO Russia Council is back in action. Uh, Chiefs of Defense talk to each other. The UN. I mean, there's unlimited. But the the default setting, to be candid, in Berlin and Paris is, at all costs, avoid a confrontation. And so I think, uh, and the Russians see that and exploit that. I think we. We got to be competing better in the information domain. You know, I saw on Twitter all this weekend the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs celebrating the three-year anniversary of the big bridge over Kerch. I mean, they don't even pretend anymore. I mean, that's a blatant, you know. <laughs> yes, we did it, and and and, and they they want everybody to celebrate. You know, how enough steel to make 19 Eiffel Towers went into that bridge. They don't even conceal what they're doing because they know that they're not going to get any serious uh, negative pushback on it. 35 Ukrainian soldiers killed this year during ceasefire. 35. Yeah, I think it's so important not to forget all of those. I mean, even though we have this major military buildup on the borders, it's the disinformation, it's the soft blockades, the soft diesel blockades. I mean, there's, it's just a really, it's a comprehensive threat. And so it, while it's really important to focus on that kind of conventional deterrence piece, there's all of these different elements to this that have to be addressed. But my, my other slightly tangential or peripheral question is about arms control. Um, and as you're, as you, you know, you're talking about improving our deterrent posture, how does arms control and strategic stability fit into that equation or the way that you think about what we need to be doing? Well, I think strategic stability relies on both sides. There has to be an understanding that, uh, that you know, both sides has of each other, Russia and the U.S. or Russia and NATO. And uh, so they reach some, you know, comfort zone that, uh, that reduces threat. Uh, and that's particularly important, I think, today with respect to nuclear weapons, et cetera. I, I happen to believe that, that Russia... Uh, part of their plan is, is, you know, conventional dominance and eventually nuclear dominance in Europe. Uh, that's part of why they introduced the new missile system, et cetera. And so we need to have a strong arms control regime. We need to bring them to the table so that we can get back to some stability in that, uh, in that arena and truly understand what they're trying to do. I don't think we know what they're trying to do right now, for sure, without that conversation. I think that um, I want to associate myself with everything Scap just said and highlight, though, that if there is going to be something, there has to be transparency and there has to be compliance. 
And clearly, the Russians will never do that unless they are forced to do that. I mean, they, they're, they're still claiming that, you know, this was a big exercise uh, that they just got through doing around Ukraine, never notified OSCE, never invited, I mean, all that kind of stuff. So nobody could possibly trust them. Uh, and this is where I think, you know, the president is correct in uh, emphasizing allies and getting Berlin and Paris to tell the Kremlin, uh, you, you're going to have to be uh, transparent. You're going to have to uh, comply with agreements and, and, and that kind of pressure. I, I think Berlin is probably the only capital that could actually influence Russian behavior. And, and so the administration working through them um, is, is going to be long and hard, but I, I don't know of a better way. All right, I want to turn it over to Jim. So we're getting near the end of time. And when we have such distinguished guests on, Jim always likes to, to ask some very reflective questions. So over to you, Jim. Thank you, Andrea. This is, this is uh, yeah, this is something I really like. I don't do it with everyone. So you guys have been picked out uh, to get one of these questions. And it's a reflective one. And, and Andrea, you're kind of part of this too. I mean, all four of us, have pretty recently left government, uh, and we've had long careers in this. And you're, and as you know, when you're in government, you're in a bubble. Uh, the Pentagon, my God, is an alternate universe, and I spent thirty some odd years in that in that bubble. And uh, when you get out, the world's a little different. <laughs> it's, it's not what you thought it was uh, when you're on the inside. Uh, and so, my question for you two is. What's it been like? Uh, you, you're, you're, you're out of UCOM. You're, um, you're no longer uh, down there in Mons at Shape, and you're in the, and you're back in the society. You're back on the local economy. You're, you're consulting and writing and listening and reading the paper more than you did in the past. You don't, you don't have the intel. You don't have the thing that makes your life so narrow when you're in, in service. And now you're out and. Uh, the dust is settling, and so what's your what was what's your reflections on that? Um, certainly, a sigh of relief, you know that that you're not being bird dogged by the uh, your military assistant and the PA folks, and you know, and and uh, you get to speak on your own, you get to write, you're listening to other people who have the different cut on things than you've heard. I mean, for me, NATO enlargement under attack. I'm just still, I can't believe that. But uh, but there's valid points, uh, you know, and uh, so just reflect on your feelings and what you find life to be on the outside, both in terms of your profession and hearing these things, but also just life in general. Uh, what do you think, Scott? Why don't you go first? <laughs> well, you know, the thing, a couple of things that have struck me. Um, one is it's reinforced my thought and our need to get back to strategy. Um, it's not that we don't have, we have people that are brilliant in this regard and you can read a lot, but we don't seem as a government to be able to get beyond the current event and, and stick to a strategic future here and how we're going to handle things. And I think it's imperative with Russia and China to do just that. It's imperative in NATO. But my, but what struck me in NATO is, is we, we started to the tactical and build our way to the strategic every time. Instead of the other way around, you know, we're finally doing a strategic concept. We've already had the military concept done instead of the other way around, you know, but that's how it works. Yeah. So that's the first thing. And I think for our future, if we if we can't get out of this crisis mode and start thinking strategically again and acting in that way with a long term thought about where we want to be five and 10 years from now. Uh, we're going to be in trouble. And, and I don't that's been reinforced in my thinking since I've come out. 
Uh, the second thing is, I am really impressed now that I'm working closer with, with U.S. and foreign corporations, et cetera, and what I do with the Cohen Group. There's an awful lot of capacity, particularly in the U.S. business, uh, corporations, and industry. Uh, I used to look for solutions to wicked problems when I was, uh, you know, in UCOM and in Korea. And there's more solutions to those out here than I could see in uniform. Yeah. It, it's remarkable. Um, we've got to find a way to get beyond our, you know, be, be a little more risk-taking and get beyond our bureaucracy to allow what's out there, uh, you know, both intellectually and, and in terms of commercial capability to inform uh, our security. Because there are some, there are some really, really interesting uh, thinking and processes and materials that, um, that I just couldn't see as a, as a uniformed officer. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's very similar to what I've been thinking about as well. Uh, but Ben, what do you think? Well, that's, that is a great point about there are so many solutions out there and uh, being able to tap into that. But, you know, in the transition, um, <laughs> for sure, I pay a lot more attention to what goes into my suitcase now since I'm the one carrying it. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, secondly, um, I really, really miss having a communication sergeant, an Army combo sergeant, follow me around everywhere because, I mean, I mean, if my phone doesn't work or something happens to my laptop, it's too bad. <laughs> so I, I miss that. And of course, I miss the humor uh, from soldiers. I mean, what lieutenants say, what sergeants say, and just the stuff that goes on. I, I miss that. And it doesn't matter what nation they are. I mean, German, British, Polish. I mean, I miss that. But um, the things that have... I was astounded to find when I watched the news on 6th January to see people that were clearly military involved in that. I mean, I, and then of course, as the arrests and what's come out, I, I, I just never in my life imagined that there would be that many people that were active or reserve component or veterans that had taken an oath to the constitution or probably had conducted promotion ceremonies and reenlistment ceremonies where soldiers reaffirmed their oath over and over and over and over how they could justify uh, participating in what we saw on the 6th of January. That, that really was a stunner uh, for me. So, so I think part of my transition is uh, assumptions of living inside the bubble as you accurately portrayed it to find out that, there are a lot of different views out there and some are really, really good. And some of them are really, really dangerous um, that I was, I was surprised about. And so that, that has uh, um, made me a little bit more um, uh, sensitive to that. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but uh, wary you can't just say, come on, this is America. This is never going to happen. There's not going to be armed, you know, violence because we, we saw it. And that, that was one thing. The other thing though, on a much more positive note, um, I have discovered, even though I'm just as busy now as I was when I was in the army, um, except I don't have general scout calling me up yelling at me anymore. Um, 
That's, he never did that. Um, the stuff that I enjoy the most is not something I get paid for. I have seized on this. It's the first South Carolina volunteers of African descent, a uh, regiment of soldiers that were formed in, in what was called the Beaufort Enclave, uh, May of or May of 1862. Uh, there were 800 contraband. After the U.S. Navy and U.S. Army captured the Hilton Head, Paris Island, Beaufort Enclave in the beginning of the war and held on to it, all the whites left from the heart of succession. And now you had thousands of contraband were there. And so uh, they were formed in, some of them were formed into a regiment. And uh, that's the, that marks the beginning of continuous service by African-Americans in the United States Army. And there's a direct connection from them to Lincoln's decision to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. It's an incredible story. And I've had so much fun studying and, and learning about this uh, with, with a classmate of mine that it's more fun than anything I get paid for. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I've, I've loved that. Wow, that's that's fabulous. That that's uh, both of you. Uh, you know what you reflected on very similar with me. Uh, there's there is boy. You know you, you when you're in this bubble, you have this view of the trajectory and where we're going, and you think everybody thinks like you. You know you're that you're, you know you're solving problems, and we're we're on an upward swing, and you know everyone's in the same train with you, heading that direction, and when you get out. <laughs> Over the past year or two, it has been pretty shocking. So I'm still trying to let the dust settle on that. But I don't want to keep you guys more. I know Andrea's given me the the evil eye that we gotta we gotta wind up. But Andrea, over to you. No, this is I always love when we can end on such a positive note, especially when given the topic that we started with. So it's always a win on Brussels sprouts to end on a positive note. But I think both of you for your time um, to join us and obviously the insights that you're sharing with all of our listeners. Uh, and hopefully we can have you back on it sometime soon, but just a, a big thank you um, and hope to see you soon. 